Hello, and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who have finished their grades and are ready for a new semester. Yep, another semester down to the wire, but grades are done. It took some effort, but we got it done. Yeah, we did. It took some work. It took some finagling. We had some difficult emails to read and write. You know, this almost reminds me of something. The last time grades were due? No, well, yes, but also no. It reminds me a bit of how the Founding Fathers worked so hard to ensure the new U.S. Constitution was ratified across the country in the late 1780s. You're right. It took some time and effort and a bit of finagling to get this done. One of the most important points of interest between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists concerning the new U.S. Constitution was the inclusion of the Bill of Rights. Oh, yes, the Bill of Rights. If we think back to a previous episode, many state legislatures only ratified the Constitution on the promise that the federal government would go back and add a Bill of Rights later. And the Bill of Rights is a promise to the citizens of the new nation that the government would not overstep its bounds and that the people would have certain rights specifically given to them. And so the Bill of Rights was added to the Constitution as the first 10 amendments. And one of these amendments, perhaps most important, was the First Amendment. So important, in fact, that we are dedicating an entire episode specifically to the First Amendment. So let's do this. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, enter we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Welcome to the Gov Guys podcast, episode seven, Captain America, First Amendment. So the First Amendment to the Constitution actually guarantees rights in five different areas. Before we get started with the analysis, let's take a few minutes and actually read the First Amendment. It won't take long. Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Yeah, that's it. So let's go ahead and break it down and start with the rights that you're guaranteed by the First Amendment. And again, to help you, we have RAPS, R-A-P-P-S. R is religion. A is assembly. P is for press. The other P is for petition. And S is for speech. And the fee actually refers to two important clauses of the First Amendment that you'll need to know. The first is the free exercise clause. In this clause, the government cannot prevent the free exercise of religious practices. So, for example, they cannot come into your place of worship and tell you to stop whatever religion you're worshiping at that time. Right. On a super basic level, I want you to think about the free exercise clause as freedom of religion. You can practice whatever religion you want to in society. That's right. And the other clause of the First Amendment that we need to remember is the Establishment Clause. The Establishment Clause keeps the government from favoring any religion over another. So no religion can become the official religion of the government. The government cannot make you take part in religious activity. So if one also chooses not to be religious, that's okay by the First Amendment. 
So it operates in sort of the opposite reason from the free exercise clause. The establishment clause offers a sort of freedom from religion. Some call it a separation of church and state. And though that exact phrase isn't found in the Constitution, the founding fathers wrote about it a lot. Madison and the other founding fathers, though predominantly Christian, varied widely in how they practiced their faith. They also recognized that one-size-fits-all approach to religion had historically been problematic in Europe. If you remember when we talked about, most of the people coming over to the New World were escaping religious persecution. Right, and, and religious infighting is by no means exclusive to Christianity, but the European worldview is largely what informed the Founding Fathers' ideology. And Madison, the writer of the Constitution, actually had a great quote which he used to talk about religion and government. What he says is, quote, The purpose of separation of church and state is to keep forever from these shores the ceaseless strife that has soaked the soil of Europe in blood for centuries. And so if you look back at European history, religious strife had been an issue. There were on and off conflicts between Catholics and Protestants for centuries, ever since the Protestant Reformation in 1517. You know, in England, where a lot of these founding fathers were kind of originally coming from, you have on and off cycles of uh, a Catholic comes to power and they start persecuting all the Protestants. And then a Protestant comes to power and they start persecuting all the Catholics and so on and so forth until there was actually a law created that said that no Catholic monarch would be able to assume the throne ever again. And in Central Europe, it was just as bad, if not worse. Very famously, the Thirty Years' War fought in what is modern-day Germany but enveloped much of Central Europe you know, resulted in the deaths of millions over a 30-year period, and, and it was all based around religious difference between Protestant and Christian. And so in the United States, a lot of these founding fathers have the benefit of looking back and being able to understand that recent history had caused religious strife, uh, and, and it's broken over into societal strife as well. And they want to try to prevent that from taking place with both the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause. So long story short, the guarantee of rights to practice your religion or simply not practice a religion without interference from the government was a pretty big deal at this time. Yeah, so religion's covered. Another right specifically granted in the First Amendment is the freedom of assembly. This simply means that you can meet with whomever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, so long as it's for peaceful reasons. This obviously allows for protests against the government, which in and of itself is a pretty big deal compared to parts of Europe prior to this time period. But it also includes just simple and harmless get-togethers with friends and family. And the reason this is a big deal is because in many countries, assemblies of people were almost always treated as nefarious by the government. They think you were always up to no good. Right, and, and what would happen if you even dared to challenge the government with open protest? Forget about it. Protesting in government was often a surefire way to end up in jail, or worse. Absolutely. Another right granted in the First Amendment is the freedom of press. This gives media and newspapers um, the right to basically print whatever stories that they see fit and that the government cannot condemn the paper or the media uh, from covering them, as long as they are true stories. Right. It was argued that a free and fair press and independent press was vital to maintaining democracy. This freedom of press is almost required to keep the government from overstepping its bounds and basically just pumping out propaganda day in, day out through the media. 
Yeah, the media is there to keep an eye on the government. It's almost like a check on what the what the government is doing, and the government cannot deny these these media companies from doing so. So there are some limitations to what the media is able to print. And Herzler was absolutely right when he was talking about so long as they're printing the truth. And yes, you know, we can argue that interpretations of events can definitely lead to, you know, differences in how things are reported and stuff like that. But what we're talking about in terms of printing the truth or or printing lies is especially in terms of defamation. You have two things that you absolutely need to know about when it comes to the media and rules of defamation. And the first that I'm going to discuss is libel. You're going to see this most commonly with newspapers, uh, but I guess in this modern age, it would also apply to websites and things of that sort. It's anything that's written down, something intentionally printed uh, as a lie to somebody to meant to ruin their character. Yeah, and the opposite um, of that is one that you see predominantly now in society with the 24 hours news is a thing called slander. It's spoken. You, you you actually say it out loud. Um, so a reporter making a report or a, a news anchor saying a story about a particular politician or person, if those things are untrue, then it's deemed as slander. And due to some court cases in the last 50 years or so, the barrier of being charged with slander or libel is actually much higher than it used to be. You have to be proven that what you were reporting does intentionally harm the person and that you knew it was a lie when you said it. The next right that's guaranteed by the First Amendment is the right to petition the government. This one's probably not going to get as much attention as the other parts of the First Amendment, uh, but the right to petition the government is still a relatively big deal. If you want the government to change something, if you're not happy with what the government's doing, you can freely approach them, get signatures from around the country of people who agree with you, and send an official petition to the government. I don't remember the exact threshold, Hertz, or maybe you do. Uh, there, there is a certain threshold where if a number of signatures uh, on a petition are signed, the government does actively have to respond. Yeah, you do. You you need support from a vast number of people. It just can't be one or two. I, I'm with you, Crowder. I can't remember right off the top of my head how many people. It might be something we need to look into. Um, but, yeah, it is important to get support in your petitions, not just a couple people saying what what should be. The last right, and probably the most debated right in the First Amendment, um, is the, the freedom of speech. It's such a broad term freedom of speech that a lot of people get confused what's considered free speech and what isn't considered free speech. Yeah, Hertzler's absolutely right. Uh, speech has such a broad term to really mean really any form of expression. You know, obviously everyone's going to agree that saying something is free speech, but what about writing something? I mean, under the Supreme Court, Absolutely. Writing something can also count as free speech. But what about wearing something? You know, if you have an offensive phrase on your T-shirt, is, is that protected? You know, what about spending money on something? Uh, if you choose to support a candidate or a certain cause, you know, is that an expression of your free speech? And then we get to even more contentious things like burning something. But what about making something? These are all things that have been interpreted be free speech uh, by the Supreme Court historically. Yeah, burning something. That that reminds me of a pretty famous court case that um is is 
a lot of people see it as controversial because on one hand, you know, we love our American symbols, but on the other hand, we like being able to voice our displeasure. And in the very famous case, Texas versus Johnson, that issue comes up. A man who is upset with the Ronald Reagan administration uh, burns a flag in protest and he's arrested for, for doing so. You know, what is that considered? Uh, the court says that it's protected free speech, but but the public opinion, you know, sentencing said that shouldn't be allowed. Right. That case is obviously controversial for a multitude of reasons, but ultimately the Supreme Court rules that this is a form of symbolic speech and it's still very much protected. And that's an important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about free speech. And one of the justices in the entirety of the Supreme Court somewhere said this, and I, I, I should look up who said it exactly, but you know, the idea of free speech isn't to necessarily protect ideas that most people think are fine, but free speech is just as important, if not more important, to protect speech that most people are going to find controversial. Yeah, in today's society, we see more and more cases where somebody is going to say something uh, that society deems offensive and they might, like I just said, it might be a negative in the court of public opinion, but when it comes to the federal government, they they won't get in trouble for it. And I feel like in society, we have a problem with defining what is protection from the government and what is consequence that will face outside of government. Yeah, and that's a really important differential. I, I think the, the, the idea of freedom of speech or throwing out the First Amendment is is your is your go to if you see somebody being you know getting burned for something that they said or something that they did, but we do have to realize at the end of the day that what the First Amendment is is legal protection. The government or some agent of the government is not going to suddenly come after you and throw you in jail because you said something controversial. But on the flip side of things, let's say that you post something on social media that gets discovered by your place of work and you know you you throw some name calling in there some things that are really offensive name calling in there uh you know x y or z the government's not coming after you they're not throwing you in prison for saying those things but on the flip side another independent private entity can choose not to associate themselves with you anymore by refusing to, you know, continue to employ you. So a really important thing that you brought up, Hertzler, is the First Amendment is not an end-all be-all of I can say anything, do anything, anywhere, to anyone, but it does prevent you from the government keeping you from doing those things. It does not prevent you, however, from consequences that come along with saying or doing certain things. Yeah, and I would just challenge the listener to remember a news story. I'm not going to give examples because it, it just muddies the water too much. But think of a time where a celebrity or an athlete said something and just think back. Did they get arrested? No, they didn't get arrested. Did uh, the government come after them? No. But did they face any other consequences? Did they lose a brand deal? Did they lose a television show? Did they lose support in, in, a, in a presidential or or, 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 or or some kind of race. Um, so so just, just think about those times. Again, there's too many examples 
for us to cover every single one and too many of them that would just cause too much controversy. But, but, but that's what I just challenge you. Think about that, that, that specific time. But one important idea that we want to bring up is not all speech is necessarily protected by the government. And when we're talking about protected speech, we're talking about speech that won't get you in legal hot water. Right. Uh, we, we did talk about, of course, that doing and saying certain things can get you in trouble in the court of public opinion. Right. People can, quote unquote, cancel you or whatever. But there are some forms of speech that are not protected by the government and you can still get in trouble for doing these things. First good example is incitement. You cannot specifically say anything that's going to cause people to hurt someone or cause damage to property. Like I can't be like hurts or sucks. You should go beat them up because if, if I were saying that for real, right in the middle of a mob or something like that, you know, that would get me in trouble because I've incited a riot. So I can't out Halloween say, let's get our torches and pitchforks and go after Frankenstein. No, that that's okay. The next one we kind of covered a little bit earlier when we were talking about um, slander and libel, um, but defamation. You cannot say untrue things about somebody intentionally and and get away with it because there are consequences of that. Um, you, you can be sued by the person. Um, you can be sued by the federal government for this. Yeah. Um, and, and the next one is is – Sometimes hard to put an exact finger on with with this term of obscenity. In Miller versus California, it was very very famously stated by the Supreme Court. That's basically like you know it when you see it, and that's an important concept. That if we're talking about obscenity, it's something that typically doesn't have artistic value, something that doesn't contribute to society. But most people would look at and say like, "Ooh, I don't want my kids seeing this, that, this, that, and the other." And so usually we're talking about like nude images or something like that uh, tend to be seen as obscenity. Also, if you if you remember that very famous line that Crowder said, that it's also um, in a very famous TV show that's out right now where um, Ted Lasso says he'll know offsides when he sees it. Um, the next one is fighting words. And fighting words is an interesting one because as someone that's in a public high school, um, we kind of deal with this thing all, all the time. But any any type of speech that promotes violence and and attempting to draw someone in uh, to fight you is considered fighting words. So calling someone a, a derogatory term and then saying "fight me" it, it, that that those are considering fighting words. Anytime you're trying to incite anger from somebody to lead them to fight, don't be talking about my mama. <laughs> Give him a body bag. <laughs> Sweep the leg. <laughs> yeah, and and kind of along with that very idea, I, I, and I think most people are going to agree with this, uh, actual threats uh, are not going to be protected speech either. You can't send a letter in the mail to a random person and be like, I'm going to kill you. And then all of a sudden, you know, if someone comes and knocks on your door, a police officer, you say, oh, I was, I was joking. Not real. Whatever. Right. Uh, you can't just make a threat against people. That's not protected speech either. So what the ring girl did was very offensive, threatening people every seven days. Right. The and ring, the ring is a 2003 horror movie that many of you have not watched because you weren't born yet. And that hurts my soul a little bit, but that's okay. 
Also, if you didn't get any of the fighting word references, those were all from Karate Kid. Just just throwing that out there. Uh, yes, the, the <laughs> Karate Kid, the oft-quoted prequel to the Cobra Kai series. Of course, yes. Let's let's take a look at historically about some of these 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 issues as well, um, because it's it's not so much us saying what is considered protected speech or what's not protected speech, but the Supreme Court kind of has the say in what we need to take a look at with protected or non-protected speech. So the first case we're going to take a look at is a very famous one. It's a historical one, uh, Shank versus the U.S. It happened in 1919, and it deals with this idea of clear and present danger, or an, or almost in the first term that Crowder was talking about, inciting. Um, because what this this person did, uh, Shank was very upset about World War One. He believed that America shouldn't be fighting in World War One, so he created this pamphlet and passed it out in New York City, saying that. You know, if you get drafted, you shouldn't accept your draft. You should not promote the, this global conflict, and and America shouldn't be that America shouldn't even be in. And he was arrested by the federal government because uh, for handing out this pamphlet. And he gets upset about this, as you would, and and Sue saying that it violates his First Amendment. But the federal government comes back, the, the Supreme Court comes back and says, no, this is incitement. You are basically causing mass panic. Um, you're going against American ideals. You know, you're not you're not being a good citizen. And if you know, if America loses the war, it could cause even more more problems. Yeah, the way I like to describe this to my classes, especially using that clear and present danger doctrine, is like let's say that you are advocating against the draft. You know, you just you don't like it. Right. And you were to say, I don't like the draft. That's protected. But he's going a step further. He is saying that if you are drafted, you should refuse to let yourself be drafted. You should, you know, skip town. You should run away. You should refuse to join the military. And so what this serves as is a clear and present danger essentially to the functioning of American government. As Herzer was kind of alluding to, like if we get we were in the middle of the war at this point in time, but if we're in a situation where we're having to defend ourselves, but we don't have a military because you told people not to join it, it absolutely messes with the day-to-day -day functions of the government. You know, it, it's a major disruption to quote unquote, how things are supposed to be, how things are supposed to run. It also causes problems in society. People start arguing over, should we be at war? Should we not be at war? It kind of deals with another case that we're getting ready to talk about with this as well, um, causing just panic in society. But clear and present danger, um, a lot of people like to call it the the yelling fire in a movie theater. Um, you can't do that. It would, yeah, it's a funny joke, but if someone gets injured on the rush out the door, then you are liable for for that injury because you're inciting mass panic. Yeah, a really good example of this idea of, of basically a functional society it, it kind of comes from Voltaire actually, or at least it's attributed to Voltaire. And he says, your right to swing your arm ends where the other person's nose begins, you know? And it, it's, it's basically this idea that your freedoms of speech or whatever they may be, they stop being infinitely important as soon as somebody else is put in danger. And if you're, for example, 
trying to yell fire in a crowded theater, you know, you think you have the right to do that. But as soon as people start panicking, getting hurt, your freedom of speech, quote unquote, is causing a major panic in society. So let's fast forward about 50 years. At this point in time, the United States is involved in another war. Uh, this one is the Vietnam War. And at this time, many men were also being drafted into the U.S. military to go and fight abroad in Vietnam. Tinker versus Des Moines features a very famous case in which Tinker, who is one of several students at the school, started sporting black armbands to protest the war. And the school, after getting whiff of what was going on, suspended those students. Tinker sues the Des Moines School District, saying that their freedom of speech was violated. So what happens is the Supreme Court's going to get this case, and they're going to have to decide whether or not the students have the equal opportunity to protest, whether the students have an equal opportunity of freedom of speech as anybody else. You know, if you're out on the street versus being in the classroom, is there a difference? And the other thing the Supreme Court has to decide is whether or not this symbolic protest speech is protected. And in both cases, the Supreme Court sided with the students. They said that the exact line is something along the lines of the students' freedoms of speech are not shed at the schoolhouse gate. And what that means is once you suddenly get to school, you don't lose all of your freedoms right? Uh, those are still going to be protected by the government. And other court cases have proven that some of those some of those changes are, there's a little bit of a difference between being outside school versus being inside school. But at least for the purposes of the Tinker case, they ruled that students absolutely have a right to protest in school so long it is not overly disruptive uh, to the school day. And so Tinker versus Des Moines is one of those really important court cases that we need to know because it does highlight the fact that students, you guys, have the same access to the freedom of speech that you would if you were outside of school, so long as it's not causing a disruption. Yeah, and I think that's important with Tinker versus Des Moines, that one of the lasting impacts of it, future impacts, is schools defining what is considered disruptions. And, you know, in class, we've looked at a couple other cases that are that are pretty much cut and dry examples. But it's still important to note that that in, in the long run, the schools have a little bit more say in what is considered, if, if, if that's fair to say. You want to talk about Morse v. Frederick? Because I think that one is a great example of kind of a counterexample to, to Tinker. Sure, let's talk about Morse v. Frederick. Morse v. Frederick is perhaps not as well known as Tinker versus Des Moines, but it's definitely getting there. Morse v. Frederick is a, is a case from 2007, and in this case, a student was at, I believe it was a homecoming parade or something along the lines. It was off school ground, but it was still a school function. And it was on a Saturday. It wasn't, it wasn't on a school day, but it was on a, a school grounds on a Saturday. So spoiler alert, one of the really big things is this person gets suspended when they don't even have to be there. But the case dealt with this idea of a student who is standing near school who held up a sign that said, quote, bong hits for Jesus. And yes, this one is a great one to go over in the classroom because the kids instantly fall in love with this case. But 
obviously, as you would imagine, this student is quickly grabbed by an administrator, written up and suspended for holding up this sign. So the big question comes eventually through the pipeline to the Supreme Court of whether or not the student had the freedom of speech to say or make a sign rather that says, quote, bong hits for Jesus and hurts her. What did the Supreme Court say? The Supreme Court sides with the school because, like I said, the lasting impact of Tinker versus Des Moines is a lot of schools start covering what can be considered free speech and what can't. And in this school's handbook, it clearly states that no drug or alcohol references or promotion is allowed on school grounds or during school functions. And he violates both those. He's on school grounds and he's at a school function, even though it's a Saturday, even though school's not in session, he still violates it. So, so again, that's the big impact is schools now start defining what is considered speech amongst themselves. Yeah. And another good example of this that I think anyone can uh, understand whether or not they like it or not, it's different, but you know, every, pretty much every school out there has a dress code and the dress code in a very similar way to your rights of free speech is, you know, how you express yourself is, is how you dress. And pretty much every school across America is going to have rules against wearing clothes that are going to advocate for illegal activities. You can't wear a shirt with a marijuana leaf or, you know, in high school specifically, since you're underage, you shouldn't be wearing t-shirts that have like Budweiser on them, right? These types of ideas. Uh, and, and so since the schools have spent some years after Tinker, You've had a lot of definition over what is protected and what's not protected speech because you've also had additional Supreme Court cases which have helped decide those things. But one of the big things in Morse v. Frederick was the idea that since bong hits for Jesus, quote unquote, was at least theoretically advocating for marijuana usage, it was not okay. Speaking of Jesus and religion, <laughs> um, there are two important cases when it comes to the freedom of religion aspect that we need to talk about. So we, we've talked earlier about the two important clauses to religion, the first being the establishment clause and the second being the free exercise. Both of them have a specific court case that perfectly illustrates how those two function. And I'm going to start with the establishment clause. Um, the, the case that, that really goes well with the establishment clause is Engel versus Vitali. This is a case that is a, is a topic that still is being fought today that, that citizens all across the country love to argue about, especially down here in the Bible Belt in the South, is should prayer be allowed in school? And that's exactly what this case argues. Uh, New York school had a school-issued prayer it was a non-denominational prayer that was said over the announcements and the students had the opportunity to, to say it or not to say it, just depending on, you know, the kid's viewpoint. Um, some parents got upset and they, they sued the school district and it went to the Supreme Court. Crowder, and what did the Supreme Court end up saying? The Supreme Court ended up saying that even though it was technically voluntary and even though it was technically non-denominational, the school functions as an agent of the government. And by advocating 
religion, let alone any religion, it is a violation of the Establishment Clause because technically Establishment Clause also allows for people who are non-religious in nature. Now, Engel was a parent who was Jewish, but in this circumstance, the non-denominational prayer still mentioned God, and, and for some students, that would have not specifically applied to them. Yeah, so you see this moment where the Supreme Court takes a stand and says, no, we're not going to allow prayer in public school because it is that government entity. And that's one that has been upheld over the years um, in various court cases. Um, there have been other cases that have been brought up. I can't remember the name. I bring this one up all the time because it's, it's just one of those interesting ones um, that public schools can't use religious facilities for specific events like graduation or award ceremonies. They have to use secular locations to do that. Yeah. And that one's definitely one of those gray areas where like, I, I can speak to the fact that for sure there were school functions in a, in a church in my school and uh, you're nodding. So I assume the same situation or similar situation for you. hundred percent. Right. And, and just, you know, whether or not, the government is entwined with religion and tangled with religion comes from this idea, which is not too long ago. It was settled about 50 years ago. It's called the lemon test. And it's from a court case called lemon versus Kurtzman. And in the lemon test, there are three things that the Supreme court has used historically to decide whether or not it's in a violation of the establishment clause. And the first thing is whether or not this law or this entity or this judgment, whatever it might be, whether or not it's meant to be secular in nature. And if we're talking about something that's secular, it's meaning that's something that's meant to be non-religious. The second part of the lemon test is whether or not it is going to advance or hinder a religion, any religion. And the third part, and this is maybe the tricky part uh, to understand, is whether or not this law, this judgment, this policy, whatever it might be, is going to cause the government to overly entangle themselves with religion. And that third part is sometimes really hard to prove or disprove. So the Lemon versus Kurtzman test was specific to the idea of uh, state governments providing funds to religious schools for non-religious reasons like math, you know, Love it or hate it, math is something that's not going to dramatically change whether you're in a religious school or a public school, right? And so math textbooks are something that theoretically could be paid for with funds from the government because regardless of if you're at a religious school or a public school, math is math, right? That's the idea. But it gets to the point of like you're supplementing teacher wages and things like that. It starts to get a little bit more iffy because the idea of whether or not government entanglement's going to happen is you have to have some level of oversight to prove that, you know, you're you're supplementing teacher wages for, you know, perhaps religious activity. And then you start to say, okay, so who's going to watch to make sure that you're not paying for things unnecessarily that do advocate for a religious practice one way or the other? And so the Lemon versus Kurtzman debate ended up being that it – you couldn't give money to religious schools for specific reasons because the amount of oversight it would take by the government to make sure that that was for purely secular reasons would be an overstep of government entanglement. But that lemon test, though it's kind of phasing out now, 
has been a big religious test for a long period of time, starting in 1971. Now, while we're on the topic of prayer in school, I do want to emphasize that even though school-led prayer is not allowed in school under Engle versus Vital, student-led prayer is definitely fine. If a student wishes to pray at their desk before a test or whatever it might be, that's perfectly fine. Uh, in, in fact, it would be a violation of the free exercise clause if you know the school were to actually try to stop that. And the other major Supreme Court case which deals with religion but specific to the free exercise clause is wisconsin versus yoder in the case of wisconsin versus yoder yoder and a few other students who were amish and i think a mennonite as well were hoping to pull their students out of school after eighth grade for religious reasons dropping out of school after eighth grade would help them practice their quote-unquote sincerely held religious beliefs. That's an important phrase to make sure that you understand. Sincerely held religious beliefs. You know, it would be the obligation of the state to prove that you're like faking it or something like that, right? Um, but long story short, they're trying to advocate for these students to essentially drop out after eighth grade so they can go pursue, you know, helping in the shop or whatever it might be, but living an Amish lifestyle. Wisconsin had a compulsory education law that said that you have to stay in school until you're 16, right? They'd be dropping out at age 13 or 14, right? So ultimately, the big question comes up is whether or not the free exercise clause applies in this state case. And what was proven by the Supreme Court was that essentially staying two extra years at school would not be a huge enough difference in the quality of education or the content of education that it would interfere with their sincerely held religious beliefs. So in this case, the Supreme Court actually sides with the Amish students and the Amish parents saying that because you have sincerely held religious beliefs that require you to leave school after eighth grade, we cannot stand in your way. Yeah, good point. And the, the sincere religious beliefs um, I don't know about you, but in my class, I got tons of questions of what's considered religious beliefs. I, I don't want to go to school anymore. Yeah, you, you do need a, a really strong basis of why why you would be quitting school to, to get this. Um, I think we see this more not so much quitting school in general, but more for religious holidays nowadays. Um, I know for a fact when I was at UNC Charlotte, um, there was a a paper that you had to get filled out to miss class if you were you were missing for um, Good Friday because we still had classes on Good Friday. Um, you could you could take that as a as as a means of leave. I think that even happened here a couple of times. We had so much snow that we ended up having to go to school on Good Friday, but the school system still offered a a permission slip to say, yeah, yeah, we. We understand that it's a religious holiday, so if you miss school, you know, it's not going to count against you. Yeah, and even practices like that get kind of interesting because, you know, I, I can say for a fact that in this country and specifically we're in North Carolina, we're, we're in the Bible Belt, is a lot of the holidays that we are given off in the calendar are specifically, to, you know, Judeo-Christian holidays. But, you know, you think of students who are not Jewish or Christian who have to go to school on religious holidays that we don't uh, observe in the school calendar. You know, that that gets to the question of whether or not is, is that 
a violation of the establishment clause if we're specifically creating calendars that favor one religion or or multiple religions over others you know it, it starts to get really iffy really fast yeah that that is one of those interesting things um it's just something that i learned the other day i heard on the news that you know the war in ukraine right now they they tried to have a ceasefire for the eastern orthodox uh christmas which is january 5th and 6th it's 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 the first week of january um but yeah, that's that's very interesting that, you know, our Christmas break is, you know, predominantly around the, the Christian Christmas, um, January 25th. So, so that's a good point. So for our purposes of this class, we do need to understand one more Supreme Court case that relates to the First Amendment. And it's not about religion or freedom of speech, but it's actually about the freedom of the press. And in order to understand that, we have to understand that sometimes the government and the press has an adversarial relationship, you know, because the press is meant to be free and independent. And sometimes they print things that the government doesn't necessarily like. And in most cases, they're supposed to do that. They're, they're absolutely free to do that. But in some cases, it can actually be damaging for national security for the press to print simply just just anything. And this is where we get to the idea of prior restraint. In certain cases, if the press gets a hold of a story which could be damaging to national security, like let's say we're fighting a war and you all of a sudden start publishing where the troops are going to be tomorrow, right? That would be a problem for national security. So the government could exercise this idea of what's known as prior restraint on the press and essentially keep them from publishing materials which could hurt national security. Yeah, and we had such an issue um, with the New York Times um, right after, so right after Vietnam or during Vietnam, um, they started publishing what are known as the Pentagon Papers, and specifically, they were talking about the different um, ways that the budget was being spent on the military troops, and the White House, specifically the White House, was very upset that. The federal, uh, the the New York Times was printing this information. So the New York Times only printed bits and pieces of the Pentagon Papers. Like I said, mainly focusing on the budget of how much the military was spending on the Vietnam War, and the federal government, you know, tried to stop. Them. They're like, no, this this is damaging to the war effort. This is this is not okay. Um, pr pretty much similar to the Shank. They, they they wanted the New York Times to stop printing stories like this. And the Supreme Court took a look at the, the, the issue and said, no, what they're printing is, is okay. It's not harming the war effort. It's just printing information to the public that, that doesn't sway one side of the war or another. I mean, I guess people's opinions could say, whoa, we're spending way too much money on the Vietnam War. Um, but that's not the intent. Their intent is to inform people on what was going on and what is continuing to go on. Yeah, and if anything, the cost of war is probably the area where you want to be really transparent with the American public because, you know, big idea number one is wars are expensive. And by printing some of the published you know, Pentagon Papers, which there, you know, was essentially the Department of Defense doing a self-study about how they've conducted war and the cost of war, things like that. You know, the government could not prove that it was an issue of national security. And so the 
the New York Times and I, I believe the Washington Post was involved as well. They were actually in the clear to print these things because it was not in and of itself uh, a violation or, or a security problem. It did not qualify for this idea of prior restraint. So in conclusion, as as you can see, there's still many parts to the First Amendment. It's important to know just the broad ideas. The one thing I hope you take away from this episode is the court cases that we talked about. They are good beacons of what is considered free speech and what is not considered good, valuable speech. And one thing that I know, especially Crowder wants, and I would really like you to take away is freedom of speech does not mean freedom of consequences. Thank you so much to everyone for listening. Uh, we are the Gov Guys. We can currently be listened to on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and virtually anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. Yeah, and if you want to look us up, uh, we are on uh, Instagram. We are also on TikTok. So remember, for those of you that are our students, we like to to post TikToks every once in a while. Most of the time they're educational. Sometimes they're just funny just to give you a laugh through the school day. We hope your second semester got off to a great start. And we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening and have a great night.